You're listening to the David Bumble Networking Podcast. Very good day interviewing a lot of Cisco engineers. We discuss all things networking, CCNA, CCNP, CCIE, Python, automation, the books, the exams, the future, your career. Another long day at Cisco Live. We talk to the authors, the experts, the leaders, and people like you and me. David Bumble coming to you from Oxford in the United Kingdom. Now, here's your host, David Bumble. So, Chuck, here's a question I often get asked. Does a network engineer have any advantage learning programming versus, let's say, a hardcore programmer or just a normal programmer who then has to try and take his programming knowledge and apply it to networking? And me being, again, the cynical network engineer, and sorry for like the double questions mm-hmm. here, but if when I look at SDN and OpenFlow, that seems to me a classic example of guys with PhDs or programming types who try and reinvent networking. So to try and summarize the question, do network guys have an advantage to learn programming in the network sphere or do programmers have an advantage over networking guys? Yeah, so to answer that specific question, I would say absolutely the network engineers have an advantage. So I've uh, been a software developer for 30 you know 38 years or whatever it is now um and i can tell you software people are much happier if you just tell them i want you to implement this x thing here very well defined and they can go back to their cubicle uh not interact with anybody or anything and just come back with a piece of code um uh, they would prefer the people that I worked with who are developing networking products quite often were more happy <clears throat> not understanding all the details of how the networking stuff worked and just implementing their widget, whatever that might be. Um, I think that there's way more <clears throat> interest from networking people in learning a little bit about software development than there is in software people learning a little bit about network engineering. And so I think that uh, people who have been able to acquire both skills uh, go much further. And so for network engineering types, yeah, understanding programming is going to take you well beyond any software counterpart that there might be. Now, if we look in the future and you say, okay, well, there's some gigantic software uh, product that somebody some you know AT&T or somebody wants to develop that is going to uh, replace a large amount of networking functionality and they need a ton of software developers in a situation like that might it be the case that your typical network engineer will provide the specifications and give those to the software guy to implement I can see that happening I've presented that as a what I believe anyway is a legitimate way that things could go in the future for large software uh, implementations of networking functionality. Now, uh, that's probably not your typical case though, right? That's more a larger entity, you know, enterprise, customer, whatever, developing something very large, very robust, you know, a replacement for an attempt to replace BGP or OSPF or whatever it might be. Um, so I think that those uh, are the exception rather than the rule. And most of the people that are probably watching this are 
um, involved in things that are a little bit smaller scale and consequently uh, their needs will be more in the realm of needing to develop a little bit of software to go with their networking expertise. And for that situation, you're not going to be handing off uh, your plans to a software developer. I think you'll be implementing it yourself. And that's why you are valuable to your employer if you have some amount of software skills. Yeah, so that's that's great point. So if you're in a small, medium business type setup, you may be the person that has to implement the automation side. Yeah. Even if you don't want to become a software developer full-time, there are perhaps roles in very large organizations and um, like service providers where the network engineer has to understand what the program needs to do and needs to understand enough about programming to be able to relate to a developer type person. Is that is that right? I think that's totally true. Yeah. So I do think that there's a need to have that knowledge um, uh, going forward. And I'll tell you this, David, you know, uh, a lot of the um, graduate and other level textbooks that I read in university are written by guys that came into the computer science and software field from outside, you know, your chemical engineers and your, uh, you know, physics guys, etc., uh, who began to pick up development of software and ended up enjoying it enough that they just continued to do that. So I do think that, uh, you know, if people are apprehensive about uh, learning software because they think, oh, I'm going to have to learn this. It's like having a root canal done or, uh, you know, <laughs> listening to Barry Manilow or whatever it might be. Uh, it's not really that bad. And I suspect that for most people, they get into it and they say, "How hey, well, this is kind of fun. You know, it's yeah. a little bit like Legos or something like that, where you actually create something and it gives you a sense of accomplishment. And that's especially true if you understand what you're doing, if you're doing, you know, what you and I have talked about, David, which is, you know, your basic uh, cut and paste of code and then hoping that it works and crossing your fingers, that's not going to be uh, personally rewarding and something that you're going to yeah. want to continue with. But understanding the fundamentals of, uh, you know, data structures and uh, loops and uh, conditionals and all the other stuff that are fun to learn, then you have that foundation, then it becomes an interesting uh, and rewarding thing to do. And even a fun thing to do, you know, I, the most fun thing for me to do, and I've spent a lot of time uh, doing a lot of different things at higher levels at the company where I wasn't actually writing code, the most fun thing for me to do, and the thing that I'm doing right now in my career is just going back to writing code because it is, it's uh, very, rewarding and enjoyable thing to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So Chuck, there's it seems to be like a different paradigm for networking people versus programmers. The famous Facebook, you know, or was it one of the other companies that said break often, break quickly type paradigm. We get told this, you know, agile development thing is the future where everything needs to be agile and you must release code before it's ready. And well, I mean, looking from the outside in, it seems to be that. That's a networker's nightmare. The last thing we want is a network to go down because of dodgy code. 
Yep. Uh, well, that's that's totally true. So uh, you bring up a good point. Uh, in the software world, and this is true about your phone uh, that gets downloaded every night or your computer that gets updated regularly or your tablet or, you know, probably the, the registers that take your money at a Starbucks or whatever. Uh, we live in a world where uh, updates are way more regular than they are than they used to be. So things yeah. used to get delivered with, you know, hardware and software built into it and you replace the software every couple of years. That was true with just about everything, right? Uh, just the computers that run back and, and do your Google websites and everything. In the old days, uh, those were not updated with any regularity at all. And so we've evolved from that to a world where things get updated with more regularity. Now, uh, the, the fearful perspective, which I think you've articulated, is that, um, you know, you, things are working, you don't want it to break, and therefore, and you've seen software, uh, rightly so, break, and so you're fearful that it will break. And I would say, yeah, well, you know, it's empirical data that's taught you to be afraid of software and the fact that it can uh, mess things up. So your fears are not unwarranted. However, I do believe that the days where networking and networking configurations were evaluated best based on how unchangeable they were, I do think that those days are leaving us. And whether it's SD-WAN, SDN, data center, enterprise, because of the advent of virtualization, because of the advent of changing needs, because of the advent even of this, um, you know, the uh, getting rid of net neutrality, you know, I mean, the, the just the technical side of that, being able to adjust the level of service that you give somebody based on how much money they pay you. Yeah. That's something that, you know, the, it's not just greedy Americans, but it's also greedy service providers everywhere would like to make more money in order to do that. And I think that networks are going to have to become more dynamic. Now, will they become completely fluid entities like we had with reactive open flow programming? That's not obviously going to happen overnight. So that's not what's going to happen. But even uh, a company like Cisco, who's has a vested interest in making sure that networks stay as close to what they are today in the future so they can continue to earn as much money as they do. Even they are recognizing networks are going to become more dynamic, more flexible, responding to topology changes, traffic changes, policy changes. And so whether that's just through a minor net conf change or whether it is through something way more uh, drastic like an uh, open flow or maybe a P4 running in barefoot networks devices or whatever it might be, uh, networks are going to become more fluid and more dynamic in the future. And the, the way that happens, of course, is only through software. <laughs> Humans typing stuff in uh, don't react anywhere as near as uh, fast as automated things could. So yeah, uh, there will be governors on networks to make sure that you don't make changes willy-nilly and potentially disrupt the network. But I do think that even in the most 
static, uh, inflexible networks, there's going to have to be uh, some acknowledgement that dynamic changes will be happening at some point in the future. So you actually mentioned this term on the previous call. So I'll just let you flow with this, Chuck, but like you mentioned P4 again. Um, so we've talked about OpenFlow. You've now mentioned P4. And we've also got traditional, say, writing and switching. Can you give us a brief, or if, or if it's not brief, it doesn't matter, but like sort of a <laughs> difference between, you know, what is traditional routing versus, say, like you mentioned reactive open flow, and right. what is P4? I mean, and does it matter? Yeah, so let me give you my super high-level view of things. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, you have uh, networks that are configured. So you have a configuration file that gets downloaded to the device, or you have a configuration file that exists on the device that is locked down until somebody does a CLI command and makes a change. That's kind of the way that things work today. It has the advantage of um, being unchangeable. You know, if it's working, then it's not gonna change its behavior necessarily, uh, but it has this advantage of not being able to adapt to changes in the network. And the, probably the best yeah. example of where you need things to change is in the data centers with all the virtualization software. Somebody does a, a, a vMotion of a VM from one physical server to another, and you need to change the networking to go with it. So that's the most, uh, you know, the easiest to kind of uh, understand example of why we kind of need um, networking to become more dynamic. Now, um, OpenFlow, and especially reactive OpenFlow, where you have uh, packets periodically getting punted to the controller and changing the network uh, dynamically, instantaneously, et cetera, was the other end of the spectrum. <clears throat> and that uh, maybe was too much too soon in terms of um, change to the network and we've kind of, uh, you, you know, it was very big in academia. It has caught on in certain segments like NEC as a product, um, uh, Big Switch as a product, others have open flow based products. So they do exist, but it hasn't taken over the world. Yeah. Um, Cisco is promoting this API based approach where you use NetConf in order to make your changes. So you're basically changing the configuration, but you're doing it in an automated manner. And rather than, you know, just reloading a brand new configuration file or making somebody manually type something in. So that's kind of in between. Uh, what is P4? P4 is basically the idea that instead of having open flow, uh, flow tables where you have matches and actions and every packet comes through this, um, you know, what is a little bit <clears throat> archaic is the wrong word, um, but is more of a traditional way of dealing with packets via a table. P4 says, well, why don't we have packets come in and respond uh, through software? And uh, when I say through software, it's really going to be through hardware. But the way that you express things, instead of expressing them in terms of matches and actions, you express them in terms 
of software. And hey, here's another reason to learn a little bit about software. So you have if statements and you have loops and you have the traditional fundamental building blocks of software, but instead of expressing a piece of code that's running on a server somewhere, it's expressing a way of dealing with packets that arrive at the device. And of course, uh, it's that packet is not going through software. That software has gotten implemented in the hardware on the device, but instead of having flow tables and all of that other stuff uh, at, a, at a level of abstraction like you do with OpenFlow, you have it expressed in terms of this code-like language called P4. That's my take on it anyway. Uh. <laughs> Chuck, I've heard a lot from Cisco about intent-based networking or intent-based things. Is that the same as AI or is that something else? What is intent-based networking? Yeah, that's kind of a different thing, David, from AI. AI is really, uh, you know, the machine has intelligence and is making a decision that it wouldn't have otherwise. And intent-based networking is basically this idea. Today, if I uh, need to add uh, functionality into the network to allow a user to connect to a resource such as a server, then I need to understand, okay, am I putting this user in a, what VLAN are they going into? How are they getting their IP address? Um, are we gonna, you know, do some level of ACLs or policy-based networking or so I have to go through and I have to program everything on the device manually. When you get to a little bit higher level, um, then what has to happen is even if you're using NetConf or something, then you need to say, uh, okay, well, I need to configure this protocol or this VLAN or this policy or whatever for the device. And that's really not where we want to be. What we are where we want to be is at a level where somebody can express their intention and the networking system will take it from there. So it figures out how to do it on its own. And this isn't artificial intelligence. It's just using its ability to translate somebody's desire into um, an actual set of configuration parameters or what have you on the devices. It's basically the idea of uh, imperative systems versus declarative systems. This is what I talk about in my class a lot. Uh, an imperative system, you specify how you want the system to behave. And at the end of the day, you hope that it is behaving and doing what was the original desire. But with the declarative system, you specify what you want the system to do and you allow the system to figure out exactly how to do that. And so we would like to get networking up to the level of, you know, declarative or intent based networking. And this has been around for a while. It's been discussed in academia for a number of years. The folks that uh, gave us, uh, you know, OpenFlow came up with a controller that was OpenFlow based, but dealt in intent based networking. Open Daylight followed suit with beginning to call their stuff. Uh, intent-based, and now Cisco and others uh, are all on this bandwagon of intent-based networking. The general idea is that you express 
uh, what what you want, that is your intention, and you let the system figure out how to do it. So if it has to configure things at layer two, it does that. If it has to configure them at layer three, it does that. You know, if there's a level of security that is involved, it's able to do that as well. That's the idea of intent-based networking. Is, is that similar to abstraction? It is uh, similar to abstraction. You have levels of abstraction uh, all throughout uh, networking, all throughout software development, and abstraction in general is a very good thing. It allows you to separate uh, your different concerns or your different uh, modules or components. If you have an abstract API, uh, one component doesn't need to know who or how uh, the other component down below it was implemented. You see abstraction in terms of uh, networking devices like OpenFlow provides an abstraction such that any device that supports OpenFlow should work with any application that supports uh, that is written to utilize OpenFlow. If you're talking about a NetConf world, and if we're in the NetConf world where you have common Yang models shared between the different vendors, then you can have your, uh, you know, NetConf and that Yang model is your level of abstraction. Now, just having abstraction does not, uh, does not achieve intent-based networking, right? I mean, uh, what I've expressed down at a device level, it can be an abstraction for um, uh, turn this interface off uh, and there's an abstraction so that it works on every device out there and you're using that confyang to do that, let's say, but you haven't really achieved intent-based networking. Your intention may have been uh, take this uh, miscreant user off of my network immediately uh, because you've detected that they are a threat to the network and so the way that it gets interpreted by your intent-based interface is, hey, I need to go down and shut off the port where this user is located. Let's find out where this user is and let's turn off their port. That would be um, intent-based networking. So as an analogy, if I turn the key in, the, in a car and the engine starts, is that an idea of abstraction? Because I don't know actually what it's doing. It just, it just works, is that right? Correct. Yeah. So there's common abstractions. What is abstraction in basic terms? Yep. Yeah. Common. We use abstractions. There's a lot in object-oriented programming or software development that deals with abstractions. In fact, you're trying to achieve abstractions to a significant degree by hiding the complexity of what is below it. So in a car, we all know that uh, you know you have a steering wheel, um, and that helps you to turn the the wheels of the car to help you to drive. There's the gas pedal, there's a brake, there may be a manual gear shift. Those things are all abstractions and how they get implemented by Honda or Toyota or um, Lamborghini for you, David, yeah, <laughs> or a Range Rover or a Yugo, uh, they all kind of work the same. And if they're implemented correctly, then they know to put the steering wheel and all of that stuff on the left-hand side of the car like we do it rather than on the right-hand side uh, like you guys do it over there. But I'll leave that for right now. It is an abstraction and that's uh, a good example of an abstraction. Now, if you wanted to take it to the next level, what would an intent-based car be? An intent-based car would be, I step into the car and I say, please take me 
to the grocery store and it turns on the car. It backs me out of the garage without running anybody over. It uses Google Maps or whatever to navigate me successfully to the supermarket and I'm there. So that's kind of showing you the difference uh, between abstraction and intent-based uh, operation of things. Yeah, so like in today's networking, I as a network engineer are actually having to go and turn the wheels and do all the hard work, whereas intent-based, I just tell it what I want to accomplish mm -hmm. and it just magically happens kind of thing. Yeah, I would even say that it's worse than that in, uh, in uh, <laughs> networking today. You kind of have to crawl into through the steering wheel column and go down to the tie rods and uh, actually yank on that thing in one way or the other. And it's going to be different depending on whether your car is front wheel drive, back wheel drive, Honda, Yugo, or like you, David, Lamborghini, whatever it might be. Uh, that's a great, great example. So abstraction is kind of like hiding the complexity in the car, yep. but intent-based networking is kind of like, um, well, um, Tesla aren't there yet, perhaps, but I mean, this whole idea that I just tell the car I want to go somewhere and it just makes it happen kind of thing. Correct, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. That that's is. a great, great analogy, though. Um, Chuck, I don't know if we've got time. Um, I wanted to talk about SD-WAN, but perhaps we'll leave that to the next one. What is a Yang model? Because you've mentioned that a few times. Yeah, so a Yang model is like an SNMP MIB. So uh, Yang is the language by which you define your data, and the Yang model is uh, the actual data. So you would have a Yang model for routing, you'd have a Yang model for interfaces, a Yang model for system information. Um, that's what Yang models are. And today uh, we're making progress towards having common Yang models. The next step now that we've gotten closer to defining them is for the vendors to implement them in a common way so that you can write a NetConf and Yang application that works with a Juniper device or a Cisco device or an HP device or an Alcatel-Lucent device or an Arista device or whatever. Whoever supports NetConf and that Yang model, uh, you can treat in an interchangeable manner. So Yang model is like a MIP and NetConf is like SNMP, a protocol. Is that, is that it correct? It is, yep. Okay, and the great. distinction I always try to make is that Yang in and of itself is like SMI, which nobody's heard of. It's just the, the language by which you define the MIB and the Yang is the language by which you define the Yang model. So if a vendor comes up to you and says, hey, we're interoperable and interchangeable because we support NetConf and Yang, uh, the next question you need to ask is, yeah, but what Yang models do you support? And if they only support their own proprietary Yang model, that means that if you write an application to use it, you will need to rewrite that ap application if you have multiple vendors or even within a vendor, Cisco today has different Yang models depending on whether you're dealing with an XR device or any of their other devices. They all have their own Yang models. So it's like a proprietary MIB as an analogy then? It's uh, entirely exactly a proprietary MIB, yep. That's great. So Chuck, I wanna thank you again. We've run out of time, unfortunately. Thanks so much for this call and no for problem. sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. It's, it's fantastic. Such as it is, yep. <laughs> so everyone, once again, please send me tweets on Twitter if you have questions to ask Chuck. 
Um, Chuck and I are hoping to continue the series. Let us know if this is beneficial, and we'll try and do that. Um, and again, thanks very much, Chuck, for your time. You bet. Thank you, David. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. Be sure to visit David's YouTube channel at David Bumble, where you can subscribe and watch all of his videos. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Catch you next time on the David Bumble Networking Podcast. All the best. Take care.